And I <clears throat> appreciate everybody showing up, I understand. There's been a recent work action, so um, appreciate your attendance. I also um, really like being here. This is the second time I visited, and I visited in the summer, I think it was. It was very nice and warm, and now it feels like West Texas, where I am. Cold and windy. Okay, so <clears throat> I, I titled this uh, talk, Visual Politics, and it's a phrase that you're starting to see increasingly in different places. I first noticed it and kind of thought about it um, when we uh, were formulating a special issue of press politics. And I wanted to do it, you know, kind of in this area, but in a way that would be inviting to people who might not have thought about it before. So we've heard about visual communication, about media politics. There's a group I work with called Politics in the Life Sciences, so there we talk about biopolitics. I wrote a chapter um, once for a handbook that looked at um, media uh, kind of applications of biopolitics, so I call that media biopolitics. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Visual politics does, and everybody gets it, and it's been amazing uh, the response so far. Uh, and I'll talk about this uh, too, but the question is, um, is it an emerging area, and should we kind of pursue it and try to formalize it in some way? Uh, and, and why is it important? So <clears throat> the other point I want to make just about visual politics is uh, Queensland University down in Australia uh, does have an identified visual politics program that implicates about 50 different faculty across several different areas of specialization. A lot of it has to do with international relations, and kind of um, global considerations. It's largely uh, qualitative as opposed to experimental or even survey-based, but it's there. So if you do a search on visual politics, you'll come up uh, on that site, and I did. And that actually gave me kind of, um, you know, a little bit of confidence that that was a phrase that would resonate. So it has. Um, okay, so why do we need it, and why not just be okay with media politics or information technology and politics, why yet another phrase? Well, it comes back to some of the work I've done um, in, in kind of visuals and people's kind of processing of information. <clears throat> and there's a bias, Doris Graber called it the Gutenberg legacy, the kind of over-reliance on the print press and the culture of words that we discount visual forms of information. In fact, we don't really even think of visuals as information. And if we emphasize a politics that's visual, then there's got to be some substance to it beyond just logos and uh, campaign posters and, and even um, you know compelling videos. There has to be a rationale for it. The rationale is that visuals are a form of information. And when it comes to um, kind of depictions of leaders, it's a type of social information. And it gives you all kinds of cues, I'll talk about it in a little bit, but uh, not only about the state of the, of the leader, the politician, or the candidate, but also cues about uh, how you should respond to a situation. What do I mean by that? Well, we've got the coronavirus out there. And <clears throat> so it's in the news quite a bit. It was on the BBC radio as I was driving up here. And the question is, how do leaders respond to this kind of dramatic and kind of crisis event? Well, their response <clears throat> could be written, it could be spoken, 
But if the nonverbals aren't there and it's not confidence inspiring, then that itself is a cue that something's really amiss. So this is what I mean by social information. Now, another reason to kind of focus and try to, um, you know, put a, introduce a little more rigor into the area is that television has has been kind of a punching bag for a long time when uh, we talk about information. So Rod Hart had a book in in 1998, and and I like his work, and he's very thoughtful. Um, but he talked about television as kind of charming people, in a way almost misdirecting them, making them feel informed when in fact they're not informed. Now, this is, goes back to the reliance on, on words. So if, if you only analyze the rhetorical component of television, in other words, if you treat television like radio, there might not be that much substance, unless you're watching you know, public television or you're watching documentaries where you are gonna have substance. So Hart's criticism of the entire medium really had more to do with the words, I think, than it did the visuals. And he's not looking at visuals as kind of social information. So <clears throat> here's, a, here's an interesting recent case study. As you look at the almost, and this sounds extreme, but almost the irrelevance of words in the Trump era. So we get into the Senate trial after the Democrats lay out a, a pretty uh, airtight case um, at least about the Ukrainian situation in Trump. And the defense team comes in and says a couple different things. And first of all, they said, well, Trump wasn't involved. So there's nothing to try here. And then the story changes after a couple days and, and evidence is out there and, and Bolton agrees to testify. And suddenly, well, even if he was there, there was nothing wrong with it. Well, even if there was something wrong with it, He's president of the United States, so you can't try him really for anything. So the story kept changing almost in a way that would have seemed shocking a couple decades ago, revealing and kind of pointing out really the hollowness of, of kind of what was spoken. And he did it in a very convincing manner, but to me, the action is in the intent of the nonverbal. So I thought there was a very clear consistent, reliable signal that was coming from uh, the Trump team, and that goes for um, Alan Dershowitz, who's a First Amendment attorney, and, and others on his team, is that <clears throat> if, you, if you look, there's, there's kind of glares, there's stares, there's almost a, a form of aggression there, we'll go over that a little bit later. There's pointing down, which is a very subtle form of defiance, you know, as opposed to pointing up, but you can point down. And there was a constant look over at the Republican side. Basically, the message was, <clears throat> you need to stay in line with this. You need to do what you tell us. And there are going to be consequences if you don't. Doesn't matter what we're saying. You need to toe the party line. So I thought this came out very clearly in the, in the, uh, the visuals. Okay, so... <clears throat> Words are fine. I, I come out of a, a print tradition. I was started out as a reporter for a newspaper, and I was an English uh, literature major as an undergrad. I think both are important, but I think the mass audience isn't parsing uh, verbal information anywhere near as much as we think they are. Okay, why else visual politics? Why now? This problem that Todd Gitlin identified, this was back like in 2002, of just too much media and too much stimulation and too much information. And it's impossible to deal with. 
So how do you deal with an inundation and information overload on a daily, even a minute-by-minute -minute basis? Every time we open our email, every time we, we uh, log into our phones. Um, well, visuals are one way to kind of cut through the clutter. And so they can offer uh, motivational cues or they can offer quick signals as to the severity of a situation or um, kind of what's happening, at least in the political landscape. Remember, this is visual politics, not just visual information. And so I think um, for, for that reason, they're also kind of, this, the, um, the information environment is lining up with our evolutionary past, is that we have a large visual cortex, which makes um, images so easy to process. But we're also seeing culturally the, the mediatization of politics and really society. Um, <clears throat> we're starting to see in research visual forms of learning that actually equalize knowledge gaps between different socioeconomic groups, between different racial groups, and between gender groups that we didn't see with, with printed questions. And <clears throat> as technology continues to advance, and we call it different things, whether it's computing or smartphones or mobile devices or social platforms, doesn't matter. It's all becoming more television-like. So people, uh, well, critics like to kind of proclaim the death of uh, the television industry. I, I see it thriving more than ever before. It's getting incredibly fragmented in the ways you can, you can view it. But essentially, television's kind of become a little more like a, a computing device. You can, you can search on it, you can call up different shows. But it's kind of hit a plateau. But the computer becomes, and information technology platforms become ever more television-like, almost by the day. And so, um, you know, if you look at the most content that's shared, it's increasingly visuals. And with that is video and still images and everything else that um, we would qualify uh, as images. <clears throat> Uh, also, a lot of the user-generated data uh, is in the form of visuals as well. So, um, <clears throat> smartphones have become kind of a, uh, an appendage and a, and a constant recording device, and it's generating ever uh, larger uh, amounts of data. And essentially, it's, a lot of it is visual. And so, that's kind of uh, coinciding as well. So just kind of testing the waters on this idea, we've got a special issue in process. We got way more papers and submissions than we thought we were, like twice the number we thought we were. Uh, Christine and I put together a pre-conference uh, proposal at ICA, which, which flew with the conference organizers and got enough submissions to, to have a pre-conference. Then I get a query from a Hamburg publisher and, uh, who's asking, would you like to do an updated handbook on political communication? Well, that sounds a little generic. What if I, what if I say uh, visual politics? Go back to the editorial team, they, they, they come to me and they say, yep, we like it. So it's an interesting um, notion and, and let's revisit it um, later. One last point on this before I go into some researchy stuff. Um, isn't it already being done? Do we need to kind of recognize it as, as a new area? Uh, I would say yes and no. Yes, there are, uh, for instance, a, a handbook on visual political communication. There's uh, traditional kind of classic works 
in politics and in imagery. I would say a lot of this doesn't deal with conventional politics per se, and um, and this isn't um, kind of a this isn't a criticism. It's just an observation. But a lot of the work is qualitatively oriented. That's great. That's fine. I do I do some myself. It's interpretive. The only issue with that is it doesn't open this area to replication or um, even to large-scale analysis, for instance, with computational methods. So <clears throat> I think there's a little space, that's where the no, where it's not really happening uh, as much as uh, you would think. Uh, is the opportunities really kind of in the empirical side? I think there's a lot of qualitative stuff going on, but even there, it's, it's not uh, always related to conventional politics. All right, we'll come back to this. That's just kind of a prelude, um, but visual politics. Now, here's another interesting thing. This is kind of a map of my research uh, areas, and it's, and it's way too scattered, and it's got way too many uh, boxes in it, right? But <clears throat> I like to introduce ideas or kind of identify things uh, that haven't really been talked about before. And once upon a time, political communication research was really its own separate kind of uh, area or verticals, the industry would call it. Media evaluation, if you're doing studies of credibility or, or media performance, is kind of a different thing. And then technology was yet a separate thing, although it was starting to converge even in the late 90s. Um, now what we're seeing is increasing kind of integration of technology with other substantive areas. So nothing uh, is really kind of transacted these days if it's not through some kind of digital uh, domain or platform. And then if I look at some of the concepts that um, I've either introduced or talk about, media biopolitics, image bioanalysis, visual framing, emotional appropriateness, viewer processing of, of visuals, a lot of that really fits under visual politics. So again, there's the phrase that kind of um, captures a lot of different things. Okay, let's move on to the first act and um, kind of a, an overview of why nonverbals matter and how you code them. I'm going to start with um, Harry Frankfurt's notion of bullshit and uh, his observation that in society, and this was before, this is prior to 2016, his book came out, I think, in the mid-2000s, um, he talked a lot about <clears throat> misinformation and his definition of bullshit is just talking about something you don't know about as being highly prevalent and different from lying. So it's just kind of spouting off opinions and ideas and it was endemic and he thought it very problematic. <clears throat> so there's different ways you can define it. It's, it's out there. If you, look, if you do a search on it uh, these days, there's a big literature. It's both a noun and a verb. And this brings me to a pair of, of girls that I found on dictionary.com. So it's uh, kind of a Merriam-Webster's uh, accessible online dictionary. And they have little videos about different definitional um, challenges, either for adults or for kids or particular words. And in this case, they were talking about idioms. Now, just looking at these images. Does one person seem to be a bullshitter and another person seem to be a little more grounded? 
Is that a pretty easy decision? Anybody want to anybody want to say the one on the right is about to say something that's completely made up and the one on the left is going to say something that's absolutely factual? All right, let me show you what they said. They're going to describe if if this will play. Will this play? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, it might be a Mac to PC problem. Oh, well, it's not going to play for us. Okay, the girl on, um, on your left um, talks about piece of cake, but then they, they bring up another topic, which is, um, does it cost an arm and a leg? So the girl on the right says, well, cost an arm and a leg, that means a lot. And the girl on the left says, well, it costs literally an arm and a leg, so they cut off your arm. And that's why they say it costs an arm and a leg. And then she goes, like that. So she's just kind of making stuff up. Now, why do I, why do I bring that up? Well, I don't know. Go back to the idea of words versus the nonverbal kind of um, intention conveyed. And I just think it's kind of a metaphor for today's post-truth political discussion. And some people are just doing this now in the public sphere. And it's very compelling. And it gets a lot of ratings and it'll even get you votes. Other people are adhering to the fact-based regime, the legacy kind of knowledge debate. And they know a lot more facts, and it's just not getting the ratings. Okay, here's an interesting thing, another point, just to um, beat this to death. But this is not my data, but I'm going to just walk you through it real quickly. This is uh, a study done by, uh, it was a team at uh, Cornell, and they did this in the thin slice tradition, which means you show people a very short snippet of either a photograph or a video, and you ask a viewer to rate it on some set of criteria. Now what they were doing was they were using uh, 10 second video clips and asking people, just listening to that clip, can you tell me what party, these were of gubernatorial candidates that were unknown to the participants in the study. If there are three conditions, there's a silent condition, there's kind of a muddled condition where all you can hear is the tone but not the content, and then there's full sound. So if the question is, which party is this candidate in? If you have full sound, it's significantly higher. If you have no sound, interestingly, it's still above 50%. So there might be a look to um, certain kind of uh, partisans, which other research have kind of worn out. Now, this is more interesting. The question then became, who do you think won the election? And this wasn't just impressions. They had, these were after the fact um, tests where they had the vote outcome. So they knew the vote share and they knew who won. Now, here again, silent, muddled, full sound. When you have it on silent or when you have it on muddled, in other words, when you can't even tell what they're saying, it's significantly higher than when you have it with full sound. With the full sound on, you can tell what party they're in, but you can't, you suddenly get confused about whether they're viable or whether they're going to win the election. They sound good, 
or maybe they sound like your party, and you're very confident in your choice, that's what the black bar is, but your actual, your prediction accuracy goes way down. Which if you turn the sound off, and you just kind of trust your judgment and watching, or if you just hear the tone with the image, it goes up, predictive accuracy goes up. So we invest a lot in um, verbal communication, but in fact, we don't need that long to determine uh, the likely uh, winner. So in the US, we have elections, presidential elections that go on essentially for two years. It's the ri most ridiculous thing ever introduced, right? I think six weeks is about right, which is what a lot of Europe does. And you know, from what the research says is you can probably do it in a couple hours. And, and the result's gonna be the same. Only, the only difference is, you know, the media companies going back to mediatization aren't going to be as uh, invested and in, in profitable um, from it. Okay, so let's think about nonverbals at least as cutting through clutter in a, in a highly um, kind of inundated information environment. And <clears throat> the signals that nonverbals convey. Um, can be, you know, described a little more specifically in terms of character traits, but also intention. So an, an, an open palm and a soft display, particularly with a smile, it's an invitation, um, you know, for affiliation. And it's also a sign that it's a non-threat display. It's the opposite of that. Uh, and this was Obama in Berlin um, before the uh, 2008 election. And there were 300,000 people that, that came out to see this. Um, and so whether we're aware of the influence or not, um, we make all kinds of judgments. And here's another really interesting feature of leaders and visuals, is that if you want to determine the uh, dominant individual in a room, the most important person or the one who has the control or the leader of um, you know, the party or in a primate sense, the troop or the band, it's literally the person who's, the, or the individual, I should say, who's the most watched. So you don't have to try to assess every person. Are you the leader? Are you the leader? Just look at everybody else to where they're looking. So why do, for instance, populists get elected? They're very compelling in some sense. And people look at them, and they're hard not to look at. Um, and so... You know, every once in a while you'll get an Obama or you get a Bill Clinton or you get a John F. Kennedy. They're also very compelling. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting cue that, again, um, isn't really verbal in nature. Now, why are um, nonverbal uh, reactions and displays important? Well, I've done some experimental work and I did some in the wake of 9-11. And if you show people a crisis situation that's breaking that's really urgent, and you can do this you know, a couple months after the thing. And you show them a weak kind of display, what I characterize as low potency. In other words, low in confidence, kind of low in energy, and just not very in charge. This was George Bush's first appearance, I think it was Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. On the day of 9-11, he didn't know what was going on, and he made some very halting statements it wasn't so much what he said, it was how he said it and what his expressions were. There's literally signs of worry on his forehead. So I asked people, how does this make you feel? I just showed you the news. I showed you a presidential reaction. So it's a, it's a news action, leader reaction sequence. Um, and how anxious do you feel afterwards? 
So when it's high intensity negative with a low potency kind of weak display, that doesn't that increases anxiety. When it's a slightly less intense but still negative kind of aftermath shot, and a high potency, very confident um, display, that mitigates anxiety. So it's kind of interesting that this stuff interacts emotionally. In politics, we often forget that really the reason a leader appears is usually there's a news context um, kind of compelling the person to come out and make a statement. Now in Trump's case, it's a little bit different. He just likes to be in the headlines, so he creates his own drama. But you take the coronavirus, and that's forcing him to go out and make some statements. So you can look at this in the current moment, and you can ask the same question. Show people images of um, the attempt to contain the coronavirus, some scary biohazard suits on, and then different displays by Trump. Now, an interesting thing about Trump is he doesn't have very pure or homogenous displays. For instance, when Ronald Reagan smiled, it was very clear. He was smiling, there wasn't any ambiguity there, and he held the smile, and it was very kind of appealing even to um, uh, Democrats. Trump does a lot of different things all at once, and it's not really clear, for instance, in this shot, is he trying to minimize the uh, scale of the threat, uh, or is he trying to critique, or his favorite thing is to, is to threaten, but you could ask the same thing. How anxious do you feel after the, viewing the sequence? Again, with a leader like this, it doesn't matter what he's saying. You could... You could vary it a little bit. The other one was more um, kind of proactive. This one, he's looking skeptical or he's looking uncertain. And here you have people wearing masks, the problem's out there. And here you've got an uncertain president. How does that make you feel? And uh, emotion isn't necessarily the end result we're looking for, although I think it's a really important result. But emotion can also drive other behaviors. So it could drive support. It could drive... Um, Kind of agreement with policies, and it could it could even uh, drive some vote choices. So the question then becomes: Well, how can we equate social uh, images with real information? So you look at the top image, and it's what? What do we call that? Anybody? Uh, storm, hurricane. Yeah, but what kind of image is it? We all know. It's a radar, yeah, radar image or a weather map, right. There's no question, oh, that's scientific. Oh, and we've got different color coding. First of all, we can kind of see the trajectory of this thing. We kind of can place it somewhere in the Caribbean. And there's the intensity of it. There's literally the eye of the storm. That's information. This stuff, no, this is just politicians being shown on TV. Actually, Again, a lot of it's implicit and not like uh, consciously um, registered. This is information too. And as Sanders gains on Biden, there's, you're gonna see more confidence and, and more kind of agency, and Biden's gonna show increasingly more signs of defeat or more signs of um, kind of appeasement. So in other words, kind of giving in to the situation. All right, why are visuals like television, <clears throat> or you know, similar to the medium of television, uh, why are they important? Number one, you don't really need to have verbal literacy uh, to gain value from that. Most people can probably figure this out 
uh, and everybody can make sense of uh, a leader doing uh, something active. So they don't require a big background understanding in politics. They're easily accessible. Um, they enable quick inferences a lot quicker um, than we realized. There was a study by uh, uh, Todorov at Princeton. He showed people images of politicians for like one-tenth of a second, and then they made judgments of competence based on a one-tenth of a second um, uh, portrayal, and that predicted uh, election uh, winners. And they equalize uh, knowledge gaps. All right, let me move along here. Okay, here are some prototypical displays. In other words, some pretty um, good examples of nonverbal behavior. This is uh, obviously a smile, but we would call it happiness reassurance. The, the first word is the emotion felt by the communicator, and the second word is what's um, being projected or the intention being communicated by the display, the display being the smile. Um, you notice upper teeth. And that's typical of a, of a smile and also relaxed uh, eyes and not like a fixed stare, but um, an inviting stare. Whereas when you get to neutral or particularly with anger, you get a fixed stare and you also start to see lower teeth. Uh, that can't hold. Yeah, it holds. The next time you see somebody who's angry, see if they're smiling a lot. See if you see upper teeth. You don't need it. So this becomes a very reliable data point to then look for this and code it in news content or in speeches or in uh, public settings. When <clears throat> there's a downward uh, cast and even a tilting of the head, uh, it starts to qualify as evasion. Okay, did I make up all this stuff? No, this was actually kind of codified by a team at Dartmouth in the 80s. Only we didn't know about it in communication um, there was a couple book chapters and there was a lot of articles that they wrote, but not, weren't, they weren't kind of reaching a communication audience. Somehow I came across this and it really uh, holds up. So you can talk about kind of three primary displays or maybe a fourth, but anger and threat, fear and evasion, happiness and reassurance. How do you know it when it's there? Well, with anger, for instance, the eyebrows are lowered, the eye orientation is staring, uh, the mouth corners are lowered, <clears throat> the teeth are showing either lower or none, whereas when you go to happiness or reassurance, it's upper or both. So you can show your lower teeth, but also with your uh, upper teeth when you smile, or like you bust out in laughter, but you're never gonna smile only showing your lower teeth, like that's almost physically impossible. Head motion matters, is it side to side, which is a sign of evasion? Um, or is there none, which is kind of a, a fixed stare, which is uh, a threat? And then what's your uh, head orientation to body? Now, you don't need every one of these criteria to, to know what the display is, but they really help for reliable coding. Okay, brings it to Act 2. Let's apply this to a real-world setting. Okay, The Guardian has done some really, um, has a, a really interesting project on, on populism, and they've classified a lot of different leaders and um, the, the percentage of um, populists starting to appear now in, um, in parliaments and, and just the amount of votes they're getting over time. This is from 1998 to 2018, and they're getting up to above uh, 20% now. 
But the limitation is they're basing this pretty much exclusively on the words spoken. So they do an analysis of speeches, they do an analysis of uh, written statements or um, you know, some kind of uh, an official appearance. And then they'll array the leaders. Trump shows up in the middle, just below, or even with Berlusconi and right below um, Victor uh, Orban. Hugo Chavez showed up as, as the highest, followed by um, uh, Madero and uh, Erdogan of, of Turkey shows up pretty high as well. But again, it's only looking at what's spoken. Now, that's useful, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Because again, particularly with populists, does, do the words really matter that much? And, and it's not that they don't matter at all, but a lot of it's just kind of done on the fly. In other words, it's not real kind of elaborated policy statements. They do have particular policies, might be immigration, might be nationalism, might be trade and things like that. Um, but it's not as elaborated as other parties. Okay, so. What's interesting uh, about this is we think about American politics not really having a tradition of populism, and actually it does. And it starts in the, in the late 1800s along with uh, progressivism as kind of rural um, and um, kind of lower income uh, uprisings against the big trust, particularly on the East Coast, but oil and uh, railroads and others. And Teddy Roosevelt is kind of embodying both the policy dimension of this um, populist style as well as the, the nonverbal dimension. So this is before microphones, but he can hold an entire town square just with kind of the sound of his voice. It's a really interesting a chapter by uh, Lowndes in a handbook on, on populism about American populists. So we fast forward to the 60s, and you see a similar kind of uh, very active type of display pointing, doing things uh, aggressive uh, with hands, and this would be a defiant gesture where um, you're kind of uh, showing your resolve, but in a very kind of determined, aggressive manner, and it's accompanied by a, uh, a type of threat display. See, you're not seeing a smile there, you're seeing a frown, and you're seeing more activity and essentially threat. So let's advance to the current day. You're seeing some of those Teddy Roosevelt kind of activity, but just almost in a nonsensical way. And, and this was is a really interesting case study to look at because it's not consistent, uh, even non-verbally, in a way that other presidents or even uh, major uh, leaders have been, except that you could say it, it's probably defiant and it's probably negative. Um, but it's hard to say exactly what all these are doing. Uh, just that he's got it, so don't question it. My, my question is, hmm, looks a little similar. So populism might look like, might look like we, could, we can know it when we see it. All right, now, what does this get you in terms of evaluation? It gets you quite a bit. So the blue line are Republicans for Trump, and the, um, the yellow line are Democrats for Hillary. Now, Trump was speaking uh, when I took the screen capture. This was dial tests uh, during the 2016 um, debate. It was the first one. 
and uh, we're not that far into it. But what happens is Trump's line this is indicative of what we saw in the whole uh, debate. When he's speaking, it, Republicans were always more enthusiastic about what he was doing. And Hillary's maxed out at about 70. Trump's maxed out at the top of the scale. And we had run these a few times in 2012. We had, we had, um, we also ran them in um, for uh, the third debate in 2016. And we'd never seen uh, somebody get to 100 because to get to 100 means that every single member of the 16-person Republican group had to max out their dial, and their dial goes from zero to 150 as neutral. And so that was pretty amazing. So what are they responding to? Well, they're responding to a lot of the um, a lot of the signaling that's going on. So uh, with a paper coming out in New Media and Society, I, I worked with a team at um, uh, Wisconsin-Madison, and we tried to uh, ask whether we could look for a populist style in nonverbal indicators, particularly um, signs of a, a, both aggression and transgression. And we checked the, uh, the literature on, on populism communication, of course, most of it, the overwhelming amount of it is um, about the discursive aspects of it, not, not the nonverbal aspects of it. Um, but there's an emphasis on style, and it's considered kind of a soft form of ideology in, in that it can kind of pair with uh, either kind of sentiments on the left or sentiments on the right. And it's as much about the style as it is the policy. And then if you look for um, recurring themes, it's drama, polarization, ostracism, vulgarity, mass appeal, things that really play to a crowd. But here was a really interesting piece um, that distilled the essence of populism into three kind of core areas. And this is the, the piece here, Sven Engesser and colleagues. And they distilled it down, and this may be a simplification, but into things that are simple, emotional, and negative. You think, well, that's just too easy. Maybe it is, but it works. When the dominant medium is visual, that kind of stuff works. So our question was, well, how can we take these three categories, these three broad groupings, and use some of our variables that we were coding the debates with? Um, and so I had done something similar with a, with a kind of a reanalysis of the 1960 um, Kennedy-Nixon uh, debates, and I compared that first debate um, where Nixon supposedly lost with the first debate in 2012 where Obama kept showing signs of defeat by looking down, even though he was supposedly just looking at his notes. But people didn't react that way. So I thought, hmm, well, maybe we can, we can come up with an index or a consistent set of variables that would represent simplification, emotionalization, and negativity. So here's what I said, is that simplification would be displays that are easy to uh, identify and things that try to get away from the fancy talk of policy discussion. So when you listen to Trump speak, sometimes he doesn't even speak in complete sentences. Well, there's a phrase for this in the literature, and they call it non-fluency. But this is a form of simplification. So if he's just kind of darting into sentences and darting out and kind of saying things at will, that might resonate when you consider the mass audience. 
What's emotional about nonverbals? Well, certainly anger, threat, not only in the face, but also in the tone of voice and in the gesturing. And we hypothesize in interruptions. And these can be of two forms. They can be verbal and they can also be uh, visual. So you can be impatient or you can be waving your hand or you can be doing things to try to distract uh, while the other person kind of holds the floor. Also inappropriate displays, just doing the wrong thing that um, will nevertheless be viewed as emotional. And then negativity is kind of the direction that a lot of these indicators would take, which is kind of a it's valence um, dimension. But also, we, um, we specify character attacks here. So negativity comes out and attack. And that's what Trump does. That's, his, that's kind of his meta is attack. Um, and, he's, and he's good at it. And he does it on a personal level. And he'll try to do it on a, on a policy level. Uh, and he's very consistent. So anyway, we had a bunch of variables. I'm not going to go through them all. Um, but they're there. And I can give you the definitions uh, or a copy of this, this PowerPoint. One other thing we did was, <clears throat> not to give up on the word completely, we looked for, um, we used a couple different uh, off-the-shelf programs. One, uh, it's called Luke, that um, we identified angry language with. And then we looked, uh, we used Diction, Rod Hart's uh, program, uh, to look for blame language. And we even um, tried to see if there was a distinction between uh, verbal sophistication and you know, how many uh, words were in the transcript or the spoken record that were uh, six or more letters. And you know what? There, wa there wasn't a whole lot of difference between Trump and Clinton here. I mean, that's a very basic uh, indicator of sophistication. So I don't think that, that got the nuance of it. Okay, now, you do the coding, and um, let me just explain how we did it. We, um, we've got <clears throat> the 90-minute uh, debates, and we segmented them into 10-second increments. 10 seconds across every single minute of the debate resulted in something like 533 individual segments. And within those segments, we coded for either present or absent. Was an angry face present or not? A defiant gesture, an inappropriate display, an interruption of a different kind, a verbal non-fluency, a character attack, or, or a threatening tone. So <clears throat> could they have more than one of these in each 10 second segment? They could. They're not completely mutually exclusive, but that wasn't the design of, of the analysis. But as long as anything had an opportunity to be in there, it's a consistent way to do this. And we did get uh, intercoder reliability. Okay, all that said, what do we get with the analysis? Hillary is in blue, Trump is in red. Who's got a more observable, kind of visible, uh, you can even say simplified emotional uh, gesturing? That's clearly Trump. But it's not just by a little bit, it's like by an order of magnitude out there that he's gesturing and he's emoting and he's doing things to capture camera attention. So you have to remember in U.S. debates now, there's a split screen, so both candidates are shown 100% of the time. There's no incentive not to do things if you don't have the floor. If you don't have the floor, and this is what Obama did in 2012, just kind of looked down his notes, it's like the worst possible thing. You might as well just get out of the frame, you know, because at least it can't be negative, or people are going to wonder why you're not there. 
<clears throat> but if you're not doing something um, in in uh, your kind of your waiting time, then you're losing that time. And Obama learned from 2012, the first debate, because he came back in the third debate and he was on Romney's every word. And he didn't um, kind of adhere to the, uh, the rules of debate as much. He interrupted when he wanted to, he corrected when he wanted to, and he did something I called visual auditing, which was he showed instant disagreement if anything came from Romney's mouth that he didn't think was right. And he said, nope, he would just start to shake his head and he would offer the viewer like this instant feedback of how to read what Romney was doing. Okay, Hillary didn't do any of that. Um, and what she did was she was very within her suit and she was very uh, contained and very measured in her response, which, you know, is probably a more polite and civil and very old school. Uh, and she had a little bit of an angry tone, but it probably came out when it was finally her turn to speak. Meanwhile, Trump was doing it in almost half of his segments, and he had angry expressions in almost 60% of his segments. So that's um, debate one, Trump versus Clinton. Debate three, Clinton, look at her numbers again. Um, there's debate one. Debate three, she is more aggressive now. But so is Trump. So Trump still outperforms her, even though she kind of ups her game. <clears throat> Although the angry tone comes out a lot more, but still there's about 10 percentage point difference there in occurrence. Um, and we only look at debate one and three because the second debate is walking around the stage. I did some focus groups on that where Trump was standing behind her. That was very distracting and people didn't like it. Um, but it was very tactical, too. Now here's Clinton versus herself, debate one to three. Clearly her debate three performance is going to be more noticeable um, and more kind of uh, active. And Trump's pretty consistent, although uh, his tone was a little more uh, accusatory in the first debate. Okay, then we thought, well, wait a minute, this might be a gender effect, right? Um, that maybe Hillary felt inhibited or that there was going to be a penalty from viewers if she uh, overaggressed. So she intentionally held back. So what we, we wanted, a, a, I guess, to neutralize the gender factor. So well, how can we do this? Well, let's take the data from 2012 with Obama and Romney and let's um, norm it to uh, the Trump data. So what we did was in, in 2012, we coded at 30 second increments and in 2016, 10 second. So we collapsed the 10 seconds into 30 second chunks. So it'd be a fair comparison. And with that, this would be really interesting. And you hit the, hit the run button on this um, bar chart. You're thinking, okay, Romney's probably gonna be up there in the first debate and Obama's gonna be up there in the third debate. Nope. Trump absolutely outperforms him across the board, except for happiness. He doesn't do it. It's not there. It's really interesting to have data on that. And there's no fear, at least in the debate. Now, he might be gripping the podium, but he's still looking. He's not uh, evading. Um, and there's lots of anger. And interestingly, in the tone, particularly in the first part of the debate, he was... Um, 
Trump was a little more upbeat, and then in the tone of voice, he was a little more tentative. But the visuals were very clear. And this shows, this plays out in social media. I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. Um, so here's debate three. Well, maybe uh, Obama um, would rival Trump. Nope, Trump outperforms everybody. So interesting to have kind of uh, quantified measures of this. I'm not saying it's the only way to understand a nonverbal behavior, but it's one way. Okay, so then we get to uh, the third act of this, and what I call the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup moment. Like, why that? Because it was a happy, kind of unintended circumstance of uh, me kind of bumping into Devon Shaw, and he was working on something, and I was working on something, and if we combined our data that somehow we'd have a better product, a better, um, a better snack, a better cookie than than we would if we worked together. So the, the old Reese's um, ads where somebody was walking along the street, they were eating a chocolate bar, another person had like a jar of peanut butter like walking down the street, and then they bump into each other. And you got your peanut butter and my chocolate. Oh no, you got your chocolate and my peanut butter. Well, let me try it. Hey, that tastes really good. All right. This is a Reese's peanut butter cup moment. All right, so we get to, um, we get to the social media era and now, what I've been talking about before was just tracking nonverbal behavior, um, kind of for its own sake, knowing what the intent is, but not really demonstrating any kind of effect. So what Twitter offers and other social media is now a new outcome measure for us to consider. And a lot of people here are doing work like that. Um, but really, what's, what's really ingenious about it is it's moment to moment, just like those dial tests, but it's on a mass scale. So now we have a mass measure that's second by second that you could track with a real-time event like the debate. And so that's what Devon asked me, are you doing any coding of the debates? I said, yeah, why? So I got some Twitter data that was going along during the debates. Can we combine these data sets? So we did, and um, it's a really complicated process, and you have to think about how do you synchronize it so you're, you're absolutely certain that um, the tweets are in response to the communication you're coding. So we, um, we identified kind of key moments and when that was from a um, kind of a time code uh, perspective, I think we used a standardized uh, set of times. And then <clears throat> you have to think about the lags because Tweeting can be fast, but it's not instant. Something happens up here, it still takes people a couple seconds to tweet, and then a couple more seconds to appear in the feed and for somebody else to respond to that. So it's not instantaneous. So even if, once you sync it up, you have to think about the lags um, and, and how you can model the effect. So ultimately it gets to uh, statistical modeling in the time series thing. So I'm not gonna go over all this, but this is what we did, and um, it took a lot of effort. But ultimately there was, um, we looked at five million tweets. There was um, from debate one, three million for uh, debate three. And right it, with this analysis, we're only looking at volume of mentions, not the sentiment, although I think that's really important and we need to go back uh, and do that. So now we've got 
we've got Twitter data and we've got presidential debate data, and we're going to use the presidential debate stuff, the behavioral stuff, essentially the transgressive populist stuff, to predict to see who gets mentions. And does it work? Only for Trump, does it work for Hillary? How much does it work for either candidate and at what time lag? These are the questions. It's a very technical kind of big data analysis. Um, here's something I just wanted to point out uh, quickly though, in terms of volume of resonance. So this is number of tweets uh, in 10 second intervals as time's going by. This is 9,000. So Trump gets over 9,000. At, at his high peak at, at a particular moment in time, but on average is, is really high. Anybody want to guess what Hillary got? Was she up at that level? Yeah, no. 4,000. Half as much. And why is that? She won the debates. She's got better positions. She's what we would expect um, for a real leader to, you know, to sound like. And to act like it's not resonating with the audience. All right, so here's the statistical kind of monster grid, but I'll break it down. So these are, um, this is the, the index of populism where we're using about six of those variables that we think represent simplification, emotionalization, and negativity. And this is a verbal index where we're looking at uh, things like anger and blame language, but also kind of verbal attacks. This is for Trump, and this is his visual index. So um, at a synchronous uh, point in time, okay, it takes a little while to develop, nothing's happening. 10 seconds in, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, doesn't matter. He's getting significant relationship, a significant outcome between, and this is a time series, not just correlation, between his um, nonverbal behavior, his index, and the tweets about him that mention him. Now, we're not saying they were all positive, but the volume is out there. His verbal index is very sporadic. It would happen in 20 seconds, 40 seconds. It might be um, significant here or there. But anyway, his nonverbals are working. They're working at any point in time. Now. As he's having all this effect, what's Hillary doing? Hillary's waiting, waiting, waiting for her moment. Okay, now I got you. Well, nope. That's 1980s style. So her verbal index, this is interesting, comes into play, but only at 30 seconds. But then at every point after that, oh, wow, did you hear what she said? She really nailed him that time. Lower number of tweets, remember 4,000 compared to 9,000. And what's going on at 10 and 20 seconds? Mm. Yeah, it's not, it's not registering yet. It's not significantly driving Twitter response. Okay, what about her uh, nonverbals, her visual index? A little bit, a little bit more, nothing like the consistency. So what are these populist um, and just transgressive communicators doing uh, they're getting attention. And, and think about the Twitter audience too. It's not truly a, a mass audience. It's open platform and these are public tweets, but it's largely people who are interested and who are kind of thoughtful and who are journalists or who are um, academics or who are politicos in some way. That's what they're responding to. So 
I would love to do this with a more kind of general uh, mass audience. Okay, I, I just out of curiosity, I ran um, a survey and I asked people in 2018, um, what do you want uh, your politicians to have? Like kind of what qualities and what kind of behaviors? So, we, you know, we asked some things like that kind of corresponded to... Um, Populism, but not in any kind of aggressive sense. Standing up for the people, a clear vision, um, and then some other stuff that's more traditional, in-depth talk about the issues, speaking for the heart. Things like in-your-face communication style, an aggressive temperament, in politics is a winner-take-all struggle. Oh, no, we don't want that. No, we don't want that. But what are they responding to at every, at every time increment? They're responding to it. So we don't want it, but we're going to respond to it. So why do it? So the performance of that kind of political um, style is almost like the new negative advertising of our era. We still have negative ads, but now we have to deal with this too. And why? Well, people don't like negative ads either, um, but they respond to them or they, they remember them. Okay, so there's some takeaways, but I want to get to a, another study here, and I'm running out of time. But um, one of the takeaways I'm thinking about is, going back to the Frankfurt stuff, is that, you know, there's, there's like bullshitting and not really having a sense of what you're talking about. But is there a visual form of that, too? That it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're just gesticulating. You're just out there. You're just doing things to attract attention that will garner that response. So is there a nascent kind of visual bullshit that goes on. I don't know if that rolls off the tongue as, as well as it's not as polite as visual politics. But it's something I'm thinking about. Um, and I think in Trump's case, he doesn't know what he's doing, but he does on a different level. Okay, let me go in a totally different direction just to talk about some other applications of visual politics. And um, this is with uh, Delia um, uh, Dumitrescu at, at East Anglia University. And we're looking at the effect that images of refugees will have on people's willingness to support humanitarian aid. And we're doing this through the lens, again, of emotion, but now we're looking at um, moral foundations theory and particular types of almost judgmental or, or morally based emotions, so whether they're other condemning, other suffering, empathy, compassion, or they're somehow uh, supportive, or they're kind of praising. So the question is, who's to blame uh, and who's deserving of help? And does a visual, can a visual alone or a visual depiction of a crisis, humanitarian crisis, drive some support, and particularly for partisans since we're in the realm of politics? Um, there are significant differences between liberals and conservatives. Let me just leave it at that. Um, there's been a lot of work done on it. What we did was three surveys in different countries, Sweden, <clears throat> the U.S., and the U.K. Uh, this is between 2016 and 2017. And we showed people uh, different images, a total of 35 altogether, but each person only rated one image, but the images all fell into different groups. They were either of kids, adults, mixed groups of kids and adults, uh, and then kids in distress and some adults in distress. We asked if people um, will favor um, financial support, food, and housing. 
Here's what some of the images look like. You can see some look more neutral, some they're standing around. Nobody's in real distress here, but some are individual, some are with groups. Um, more mixed groups, and then suddenly, if you can see close enough, some real distress. Usually they're crying, they're in agony, there's something um, bad going on. Okay, so we get, we asked for overall emotional response um, to the images. And what we get is, going back to those moral emotions, the more um, kind of compassion, empathy, we see the highest levels, surprise, in Sweden, not in the US, not in the UK. UK and US are pretty similar, look at that. Um, and the least amount of condemning emotion reported also in Sweden. And this is in response to the image. Now, when we, when we start to look at the effects of uh, kids versus adults, that as we move from uh, liberal to conservative, that in, in Sweden it didn't really matter that much um, whether you were looking at kids or adults. Like, you know, if you're a liberal, just give them support. If you're a conservative, forget it. But interestingly, in the US and in the UK, we show uh, kids, suddenly, when you get on the conservative side, there starts to be a little bit of movement. And then when you, when you show kids in distress, there's even more movement. So again, like, like the case with Sweden, the liberal um, kind of respondents are saying, yep, they merit support, but conservatives mostly or respond more strongly to pictures of kids. And then when you see kids in distress, and uh, I think this is for uh, all surveys combined. When you get to the very edge of the scale, and it's kids in distress versus adults in distress, even adults in distress, the conservative respondents don't merit that much uh, sympathy. Um, but the kids do. And then we see the separation here for mixed groups as well. So. There's, uh, and then for kids overall, it's just, it's just a higher level. So we start to see some really interesting uh, policy kind of outcomes. And we wondered, well, what's the path of influence here? Because you've got a couple different variables at play. You've got the images, you've got ideology, and you've got emotion. And it can go a lot of different directions in the support for humanitarian aid. Um, and it's usually with emotional kind of, uh, or affect-laden images, it's rarely the case that you'll show an image and it'll have a direct effect. Sometimes, but not always. Usually it's filtered by prior beliefs and emotions uh, that arise from the viewing situation. So what we found, and we're, we're confirming this with, with more analysis, is that so ideology kind of moderates and emotion mediates. So it's a moderation, mediation kind of test. That the images kind of Initiate. So you see the images, and you don't go straight to humanitarian aid. It activates kind of your, um, your outlook on issues, and then that kind of interacts with your emotional response. And if it's in a particular direction, that will lead to more support uh, for aid. So it's an interesting way to kind of, again, um, quantify some of the effects uh, of visuals, as opposed to just describing what they are in the news. Um, and we've got some, some conclusions here. Um, but basically, if you want to move public opinion and gain 
garner a little more uh, support for aid, it's probably kids in distress that are going to move it. And kids that aren't in groups, and particularly adults in groups, if they're not in distress, and even if they are, it's not that a newspaper is going to run photos uh, on the basis of what's going to drive more support. But if you're a strategic actor, like a politician or a, an interest group, you might. Um, so kind of interesting stuff. So I want to um, kind of open it up to discussion here, but going back to this idea of visual politics. And one of the things I'm also working on is 360-degree uh, depictions, video depictions of protest. So here I was in the middle of the um, 2018 uh, People's Vote March. And some really interesting stuff going on, signage, but also from a participatory point of view. And when you capture this on video, uh, and when it's 360, it, it really starts to place you in the spot. So I would consider all this in the, in the domain of visual politics. Uh, it may be a little bit broader than what you're thinking, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So just kick it open to questions. Are they, you know, to what extent are they universal? Yeah. And by that I don't mean global, I don't just mean globally, uh, uh, different countries, regions of the world, yeah. but I also mean contextually in the sense of the type of show, so is it a TV debate or is it a policy discussion, is it face to face with Rachel Maddow or is it mm -hmm. in front of a crowd? Mm -hmm. um, so what, to what extent does the context shape the behavior? And another thing is the media logic. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that something's changed with US TV debates now that you get a completely full split-screen experience. Mm -hmm. So at the back of my mind is this idea that not only does the context drive the kinds of interactions that 
people, or, or gestures that people adopt in facial expressions. Um, but there's also a kind of conscious uh, element to it, which is driven in part by the media logics of the format of the show. Mm -hmm. And that therefore it ceases to be a kind of subconscious thing. Mm. So where do we start to draw the line between something that's consciously adopted as a, as a form of uh, persuasion mm -hmm. versus what underlies a lot of the literature from social psychology about gesture, which is that a lot of this is just subconscious. It's a kind of manifestation of our character traits. It's in the moment, so we, could, we are fully in control of how we behave. And, you know, in poker, they have the idea of the tells, you know, little facial <laughs> tips that people... You just can't help it. Yeah. But to what extent does it hinge on that idea of context versus also the idea of strategic adoption of specific strategies in the moment? Right. Yeah. Let me let me talk about uh, the context um, for a bit. And first of all, it does vary by culture. So what's really interesting is if you look at, for instance, uh, U.S. debates compared to French debates compared to Korean debates. And in the Korean uh, presidential debates. The only candidate who really gets animated is the one who has absolutely no chance. And that's almost a predetermined role. And so they're almost given license to be more animated and to both agree and to disagree and to mildly interrupt in the way the other candidates don't. And it won't reveal any kind of response to their opponent because it's seen as kind of giving ground. Is that it's a... It's a um, ultimately a contest for dominance and if you're reacting to somebody you're not the dominant figure they should be reacting to you and so it's much more uh, literal but it's also much less expressive so you don't get as much out of it now in the French context some of the work in the 80s and, and more recent stuff we've done um, kind of shows a certain enjoyment factor for aggression and for contention and so you get um, I think it was the 26, uh, 2017 debates, and uh, Le Pen's in there, and first it's a group, and it's kind of boisterous and raucous, and then Macron starts to emerge, and he's able to talk her, kind of over her, in a way. And so it's almost, well, we call it, we have different forms of interruption, but one of them is verbal chicken. It's the idea that you're gonna drive your car off the cliff until somebody pulls back. Well, you can do that with debating, and just nobody's gonna stop until the other person stops. And so Macron did that to Le Pen, and in the second debate, where it's just one-on-one, -on -one, basically almost unintelligible because they're both talking at the same time. So it's an inverse of the Korean kind of, um, I'm not going to show anything, but the, the French version was, I'm going to talk over you so much, it's, it's going to neutralize. And that, just to mention a strategy point, I think the way to um, deal with populace is to think about neutralizing as opposed to dominating. Because uh, otherwise you have to be better at the gestures and more animated. And, and that's, that's tough to do unless you're just kind of naturally inclined to do that. Um, so does, does the specific format, though, also kind of shape the behavior? And I think it does uh, to some extent. They're all aware. It's a split screen. Um, and the timing matters, too. So the last couple Democratic debates we've had in the U.S. Uh, have been really raucous and really almost shout fests and they're hard to watch because they're all trying to get their um their licks in against whoever is the presumed front runner and they're all raising their hand all the time 
and it just there doesn't seem to be any uh, rhyme or reason to it. So I, I saw a tweet uh, from a friend, and she said, you know, these debates are now exhausting, and they're not informative, and they're just kind of ritual endurance tests, and why are we doing them? So they're not, um, right, it's not that kind of natural behavior. Um, but on, on the response to the display, what I would say is um, we're forming judgments and we're, we're making evaluations of traits, whether it's credibility, believability, trust, appropriateness, things that are in the moment that do have a lasting kind of resonance with people. And so it's that kind of ineffable, like, what do I like about this person? Why, do, why am I kind of drawn to that person? And it's hard to articulate. I can't tell you why. I don't like Bernie Sanders. I don't like Bernie Sanders. I would never vote for him. Forget it. I don't like him. Why? His policies are good. I mean, if you like that stuff. But, and, and I do. Um, he's, he's a warrior for the party. Uh, he's a strong voice. There's just something about him. So I'll notice it in myself that I make judgments and I can't always put a finger on it uh, as well. So I think some of this is going to come out where it doesn't feel scripted. And you have to remember a lot of these things are chopped up and sent out on social media. And so uh, you're only encountering a little bit of it. And the average person isn't tuning into the whole debate and they're not seeing an extended thing. They're just seeing the one uh, piece. So the campaigns, if they were good, they would, they would immediately uh, chop up the best moments and send them out. And that's increasingly happened. Unfortunately, I forgot your first question. Um, well, the first question was really about the context. So I think you've yeah. answered that. Okay. But, but what, what, I think the, thing, what the only thing you haven't addressed is mm. really the idea that these things are not really subconscious, that, that, mm. that, that the politicians are increasingly yeah. um, adapting their behavior yeah. and acting in ways that um, they think will have an effect. Right, so it's not subconscious. So where does that feel? Is there comes strategic and it yeah. becomes something that's trainable? Is there any genuine communication in politics? Yeah, right. And and that's an old question. And yeah. that was the question that that you know Dog Reagan as well. Um, mm -hmm. I would I would give the analogy of a movie, and you know you know the the climax scene is coming up, and the music's cueing you, and you 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 know what's going to happen. It doesn't stop you from emoting. So the, at least it doesn't stop me, those, the predictability of it, even knowing it of it in advance and even the inauthenticity of it, as long as it's consistent and clear, I think that's the important thing strategically, is not to make it feel absolutely genuine. So, so Beto O'Rourke tried to go overboard with being genuine, which he thought was being angry, and he found himself at the bottom of the heap. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't think most people assume politicians are always being genuine. It's just part of the brand, and, and it is a show. Um, I think what would be interesting, though, from an opposition point of view, is if you could get someone like Boris Johnson behind the scenes, if you could get Donald Trump behind the scenes, and what if they were both kind of genteel, kind of, you know, champagne uh, drinking, uh, you know, high-minded socialites talking about uh, the latest article in The New Yorker. What if that was the real Donald Trump and Bojo? I mean, that would be fascinating. So if I was a um, strategist, I would, um, I would try to show the, the in on, inauthenticity as a hit piece, even though they're doing something nice. Great. Do you have another question? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. First of all, thank you for a really, really interesting talk. Um, 
million questions, but I'm going to just stick to one. Um, a lot of your experiments where you're comparing with Democrats to Republicans. Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, I'm wondering when you're comparing things like the 2016 election and your you know, Twitter data as well and stuff. I wonder if a lot of the stuff that is going on can also be uh, at least somewhat determined by the fact that in 2016, Democrats were not generally behind Hillary even before she stepped in as the sole elected representative, uh, right? So I wonder if there was, like, you have your dials, right? And, and Donald Trump was, became massively popular, it wasn't in the beginning, but became massively popular. Mm. So the people you had dialing were probably already more excited about whatever Donald Trump was going to say than they would ever have been about anything Hillary would ever say, mm. is what I'm wondering. Because that same thing kind of goes into when you're looking at the pictures. You, you're showing these pictures of anger and of, of trust like, to these, these uh, scenarios. Right? Mm -hmm. and I was wondering how more safe do I feel looking at a person from my party that I care about or right. wonder if like would be a good president as to one that I would never elect myself, but I do identify as a Democrat. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the short answer is if you can't generate enthusiasm among your own troops, Absolutely. you don't stand a chance. But, so you don't want to generalize based on a very small end, right? And that was a very small end. All we have are 34 seats in our, in our dial test theater and, and 34 dials. So it's always a small number. Um, but what we identified in both debates, and, and this is second by second data over 90 minutes, so it's actually pretty big data itself is this consistent enthusiasm gap. Now, this is West Texas, this is redder than red, mm -hmm. although, let's see, it was 20% vote for Hillary and like 44% for Beto. It's kind of interesting movement there. Um, but these are self-proclaimed Democrats who are evaluating Hillary and Republicans evaluating Trump. So at least there's that. But and so I would be skeptical as well until I looked at the Twitter data. and. This is Twitter data reinforced the small scale enthusiasm gap that I saw. And if, and if you know, even irregardless of the valence, whether it's positive or negative, the more than double number of tweets that Trump was getting consistently, to me showed, like confirmed that enthusiasm, like that was real. And so he was able to drive that, um, you know. I'm sorry, can yeah. I answer that? Yeah. Because I, that's my particular field of study is Twitter mm -hmm. data of that kind of when it comes to Trump, like looking at whether there's positive or negative representation of Trump, it's very difficult to determine a lot of times, like with the images as well as the primary extra source now in my PhD. But, um, but assuming based on numbers alone mm -hmm. that there is a positive or a negative is a really dangerous thing. And, and even analyzing sentiment is almost impossible at large scale. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, the way that it's, done. it's not that precise, but... Yeah. Um, if, I, if I have a picture of Hillary, I won't say Hillary, that's what Right. If I have a picture of Trump, I won't say Trump. Well, well, I think the answer there is to triangulate your data and your questions, so don't rely on one set of data. So what's, what's interesting about um, some of this kind of combined work we're doing is it's not just Twitter analysis. And it's not just debate analysis, but I go even further, so I hold focus groups 
Um, and I'll show them key moments either during the debate or uh, some of these news action, presidential reaction sequences and tell, get them to tell me what's going on. So I try to validate my impression through their kind of responses. And so just to take that one example of, of Trump standing behind her, lurking behind her, I mean, they really noticed that. And to a person said, I don't even remember. They said, I just watched that and I don't even remember what she said. And I'm a Hillary supporter. Like it, it you know, distracted me that much. So then I'm thinking, okay, well, combined with the gap we're seeing in, in enthusiasm and the number of mentions, like that stuff is really working on some level. So that's the way I would triangulate it. So in any given election cycle, um, there'll be you know pieces with focus group data, pieces with maybe some dial test data, pieces with Twitter data now, pieces um, you know maybe with some survey data and, and other stuff. So even eye tracking, we did eye tracking of inappropriate displays and, and like the more you have a complete picture, the more confident you can be. So that's the best answer. Um, just on what you were saying about um, sort of how um, as Trump was more sort of um, is he's more non-verbal expression and in, indeed his verbal tone as well there was more sort of response on Twitter I'm just wondering if you have I know obviously the data can't allow you to make predictions but sort of, do you have any sort of feeling for what might be the mechanism which underlies this um, sort of like I don't know if my gut instinct is that you know um, people don't normally speak like Tony Blair or like Hillary Clinton, whereas I suppose Trump might seem a bit more normal. And yeah. Is that why people respond to it? Do you, mm. do you have any ideas about why that might be? Yeah, it, it almost goes back to some of Rod Hart's work. You know, I like some of his work and then some of his work I take issue with, but he has another book called The Sound of Leadership. So if you think about some of those um, charts I was showing of the thin slice studies where it doesn't make any difference if they're only watching the person versus whether they're just hearing the person, that that, the sound itself is emotional content and is a nonverbal cue. So if you think about what a nonverbal is, it's not just a display, it's also tone of voice, and it's also things that um, are interruptive or um, somehow kind of, um, you know, uh, disruptive. But, but tone matters a lot. And I think uh, also not having uh, like a non-fluency is almost a sign of authenticity. So one thing Trump can't do very well is, is read a speech or read a teleprompter. He does it once in a while. Uh, and so I think people do respond to that um, because he goes all in. When he goes out on stuff, I mean, there are things that I think qualify as hate speech or I think should be investigated by the Secret Service because he's asking those Second Amendment people to take care of her. You know? um, so he goes a lot farther than I think norms of you know, civil society should go. Um, and, and he's governing with the minority, so uh, kind of a, a minority core, <clears throat> um, but somehow has managed to capture the party. So I think it goes to authenticity, bottom line. Yeah. Oh, wait, back there. Yeah. 
Right, so this goes to a, another uh, ongoing project I've got. I call it Memorable Moments in Televised Politics, and this goes way back to like late 90s um, in some of my early media politics classes. So I would take um, key moments from debates, and, and there are some great ones, right? And everything from Nixon sweating on camera and looking shifty to, um, you know, Lloyd Benson uh, taking down Dan Quell, you know, you're no Jack Kennedy, to <clears throat> one of Hillary Clinton when she was running for New York Senate and a congressman named Rick Lazio who committed kind of an inappropriate, like, debate behavior. Has anybody heard of Rick Lazio? One person. Yeah, right. This ended his career. So, and it, and it goes back to the, the stocking thing. So what Lazio did, this is, they're standing at different sides of the, the base stage, is he wants to, he's, he's all in a hub about soft money, in other words, just kind of special interest group money funding negative ads against them. And he wants to get an agreement signed right then. And he says, well, you know, um, I forget what her title was, she probably just calling her Mrs. Clinton at that point. Um, you know, why don't we stop talking about this and why don't we sign it? And she goes, well, you know, that's nice, but we'll, we'll talk about it. Your campaign can call my campaign later. Goes, no, no, no. Well, I, have, I have a deal right here, and, um, and I'm ready to sign it right now. And he pulls it out, and he opens it up, and he walks over to the base stage, and he's like, I'm ready to do this right now. And he looks at the camera, and she's like, that's some good theater, but I don't think so. No, 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 I really want you to do it. So he goes a little over the top, a little too persistent. She deflected it and kind of met him head on, and he had to walk back with this empty piece of paper, and she put him in his place, and he stood behind the podium, and that was the end of him. And he ran for office a couple times after that, nothing happened. So, the most frustrating thing for any viewer who wasn't a Trump uh, supporter uh, in that second debate is when he started stalking her, and I have some slides of it, and there's one, where he's kind of testing the waters, and I've got him, and he's looking over like this, like, can I get away with this? And the minute he gets away with it, then he starts to do it, and then he just starts to treat it like Alec Baldwin, Saturday Night Live, it's like, I'm gonna be the shark on stage. She writes about it in her, um, in her kind of, um, you know, a memoir about the campaign, and she said her skin was crawling, and she felt like confronting him, but she didn't quite say it that way. She said, I felt like asking the audience, should I respond to this or not? Well, now, if you're vying for leadership, and leadership in a real-time contest between two people vying for the one position is a dominance contest, why are you asking the audience about what you should do? Shouldn't you know what you should do? Shouldn't you be able to deflect him just like he deflected Rick Lazio. So I'm thinking this is her Rick Lazio moment. This is it. Trump's done. And she stood there and just acted very bothered. And um, and I think you know that kind of cemented the dynamics that he was just going to get away with this stuff. So it's highly problematic. It's highly distracting. Um, I don't think it should be allowed. But if someone violates your space like that, I think you have a right, regardless of gender, um, say, you're in my space and I want you out of it. And I don't even want you in the camera shot, so you're gonna have to leave right now. And then see what happens. And she didn't take that chance. So I think 
to me, leaders like um, do take some risks, and they do kind of put it on the line, and they take control of the floor, and particularly against once you realize you're you're up against the populace, there's only one way to neutralize, and that is to to not let them have the floor. So it's almost like playing against a um, that's a bad analogy, but grandmaster at chess, you're not going to win. Maybe you can get stalemate, and that way nobody wins. So I've got, oh, I don't think it's going to play. I've got actual video of Macron. No, it's not going to play. Oh, well, that's too bad. And just talking over Le Pen when she brings up the idea of a burkini as kind of a controversy in France, and he says, just, and he's very polite, and he speaks a million miles an hour. Ms. Le Pen, like, you're trying to just divide society and bring up the worst things that, you know, we have to deal with. And you can't speak for me. You're not a ventriloquist. And she's like, huh? What? Huh? And he doesn't uh, relent. And he just goes and goes and goes. And, and that's the way to, um, you know, to kind of win. So I think those moments, though, are really important. I have a bunch. Um, so if you want to look at some, I've got, I've got lots of transcripts. Okay. Yep. Um, I noticed that a lot of the work highlighted um, here about the politics focuses on traditional state actors like politicians. Yeah. Um, has it really been applied to non-state actors, mm -hmm. ranging from like, ideological influencers on YouTube all the way to not, like, violent non-state actors like terrorists? Not enough. And so now we're in the era of like, computation and big data. So I think there's all kinds of opportunities, first on a small scale to kind of validate it, but then on a large scale. So one of the things I would love to do is a nonverbal uh, automated analysis of visual signs of hate speech. So you wonder what this is about, and Trump would constantly go like this. So you look it up, and some people say it's a white power symbol. Some people say it's an okay sign, it's both. Um, and I looked it up once, and it's supposed to be a P, and this is supposed to be a W. So white power. And it's been done a couple times in congressional hearings among staffers. It was done once by a guy in the um, uh, Coast Guard. College right. And that guy got fired, as he should. But I think there's more signs of, for instance, visual hate than... Um, than we recognize. And I tell you where I first noticed this, and I thought, oh, we have to study this. It was a documentary of Bobby Kennedy, and it's from 1968. And he went all around the country, and he went West Coast, and he went Upper Midwest, and he went East Coast, and everybody loved him, and you can tell it, because they were, you know, projecting kind of their hopes into his candidacy. And I have a lot of friends in the Deep South, and no problem, Texas is technically in the South, no problem with the South. But when he got down to the Deep South, they gave him an expression that you could only describe as hate. And you know it when you see it. It's a little bit different than anger. It's like anger combined with contempt, combined with you don't deserve to be here. And it was so stunning to see this in a documentary because they showed audience reactions to him everywhere else. And it was there that he got this real negative feedback. And he kind of, you know, worked his way through it. But I thought that right there is nonverbal hate speech, only it's, it's the audience communicating it back. So, I, you know, I, I didn't do these studies, didn't have enough time. Um, 
But it'd be interesting to look at dimensions of race and dimensions of gender and to show it cross-partisan or to show it on other dimensions. People who have certain sensitivities or proclivities um, could be disgust sensitivity or it could be uh, you know, some kind of belief system. So it doesn't always just have to be like left-right politics. And then you show them images of outgroup politicians or leaders. And I mean, that's where you're going to get, you're going to get some um, social desirability reports and people aren't going to tell you their actual feelings. So this is where the toolkit, it, it really pays to have a broad toolkit. So another thing we have in our, in our shop is physiology, where you can get people's arousal, which is skin conductance, their heart rate, and their smile. So you can lie or provide the polite response on a survey all you want, but your body tends to be an honest signaler. So if you're bothered by something, you're probably going to get aroused and your attention's going to focus and your heart rate's going to like momentarily decrease and your muscles around your mouth, you, your mouth might not be forming into a frown, but your muscles are going that direction and we could detect it with these bioamplifiers. That would be a fascinating study. So... Lots of opportunity. Any other questions? Can I just ask a question, sort of riffing off of what you just said there? And, and yep. It's really fascinating because, and also what Andy said about the, um, the you know, the hovering behind. Mm. And I'm just wondering whether or not this, you know, I, I wrote about 2016. And, there's a line where I wrote, I, said, I actually wrote, it gives me physical pain to write this, but I said, you know, there is no such thing as bad publicity. It's an old cliche. Yeah, but right. I'm just wondering if there's something that we're kind of, in a way, almost missing by looking for the substantive connections between specific gestures and mm. movements and outcomes that you, you know, your work's great at kind of making that connection yeah. between, um, you know, uh, gestures and visual representations and things like trust, for instance, you know, they're very hard to do, but your work has stood that up for 10 years or more, and it's really, really valuable. But I'm just wondering whether or not, coming back to this idea of irrationality in response and the idea that the body doesn't lie, and whether or not we just need to admit that there are certain uh, parts of political life where just arousal on the basis of often what might be quite negative reactions will in some way do the job for people of all kinds. In other words, it's, you know, it's, it's a cliche of American politics that the problem with the primaries is that you, know, you don't get name recognition in the early stages, then yeah. you're dead. Yeah. And it's just that literally people have not heard of you and they think, who's this person? And right. that's it. Right. So breaking through is really important. So you know, we know that Trump didn't have that problem, but he did have a problem of being perceived as a legitimate political actor. Yeah. So he had to right. make sure that he was seen as a contender early on in the primaries and he yeah. did that spectacularly well. Right. But I'm just wondering if there's something about this that is about that sort of basic kind of gut reaction to the presence of something that catches your attention yeah. that does the job in lots of contexts. And it goes beyond specific concepts that you can measure, right. um, which are often based on a, ra you know, a kind of rationalist paradigm, really, to mm -hmm. say that there is a link. Okay, it's not the written word, but it's still a rationalist paradigm and that an enlightenment is, paradigm that you're yeah. working in. It's to say that there is, there are identifiable links between right. specific conceptual conceptual outcomes and the body language itself. It's just that the body language is not 
textual and therefore right. it's what we miss. Right, and, and increasingly with, with populists, it's not textbook. It's kind of do-it-yourself. Yeah. Um, so I'd I make a couple observations. One of them is if you've got three or four basic repertoires, and this is all you need um, to kind of communicate with the mass audience, that there's two you want to use a lot, and there's two you just don't want to use hardly at all. The two you want to use are happiness reassurance and anger threat. And it used to be that you needed a nice mix of that, that fluid uh, gestures and the ability to kind of shift in your tone um, according to the situation was highly valued. Uh, I think in the populist um, tradition, you don't need that kind of variety. You can just attack. Now, what does attacking do? Attacking bond supporters particularly and fires, oops, fires them up. And so it, um, it doesn't have that effect on opponents. Whereas smiles and reassurance, on the other hand, can, can deflect some hostility from opponents. So Reagan, the, the kind of um, uh, theory goes, was able to win over some Democrats because he had this great display. It just looked like a winner. It was hard not to be optimistic seeing that. Um, he rarely used that anger stuff, but that's all Trump uses. So what Trump does is he doubled down on his base to make sure they're with him, and he does that by using excessive amounts of anger. Now, the two you don't want to use are fierce uh, evasion and sadness appeasement. So if you're seen as an appeaser or if you're evading the situation, that's not being the dominant figure. And, you know, going to the question of, well, are these reliable signals or are we now kind of seeing like a, um, an erosion or a dilution of that because there's so much noise out there in the environment? Like what are really people really picking up on? I'd go back to the thin slice literature that says all you have to see is 100 milliseconds of a display and you can judge competence or you could judge, make some basic character judge. So I think, if anything, we're, we're overdoing it a lot, but the average person isn't tuning in to all that stuff. They're only seeing a little bit. Uh, and that's all they need. And, you know, there's, um, there's just kind of historic evolutionary reasons why we're, why we're kind of adapted to respond to these signals. And if, if there is, uh, you know, so human society is socially organized. And that means there's generally a leader. So we, we try to enact democratic norms, but they don't go against kind of the natural order of things. I know that kind of sounds extreme, but it's really hard to enforce. And it's hard to export to other countries, just not a really comfortable system. Um, but these displays are common not only in humans, but in primates and other and, you know, animals. And so there's a widespread tendency of anything kind of sentient to respond uh, and to treat these as real. And so you have to treat it as real because if you, it's kind of like uh, type two air, if you think it's not a threat and then it turns out to be, then you're not gonna make it into like the next problem space. So the negativity stuff, it's like negative ads. It just, it gets you because, well, I better check it out just in case. There's another news report about coronavirus. I'm not gonna get it, but let me check it out just in case. And if that guy's looking weak, 
I don't know about uh, you know UK health minister, but if if a health minister came out like in the U.S., they're being very confident. And people are saying overconfident. No, we got this. We got everything's under control. Don't worry. Okay, if you're going to err, err on the side of being overconfident. If you're going to come out and you're going to be George Bush in headlines, there's um, yeah, we actually know there's probably 900 cases across. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that. <laughs> oh, I, whoop, whoop, you're done. And the market and everything else. You have a question? No, I was, I was wondering just just to like go in the ultimate because we're always talking about how do we activate the people who are already. Like, I'm already yeah. a Republican. Right. How do we get how new? Does Trump activate me? How do we get new people? Do you think yeah. Through through this kind of body language to convince someone yeah. to shift from one end to the other. Mm. Because, I mean, usually, logically, I would think not. But. Yeah. Mm. Can you override someone's kind of policy criteria? I think if they're, if they're soft ideologues, if they don't really have a fully formed kind of political belief system, then they might be movable. And then they might be more attracted to style. Um, but even there, like, the style has to be authentic or believable in some sense. Let's kind of get back to your point, which is the performance of it has to be credible. And so I don't really see anybody in the democratic field now who's got a performance that's going to equal the number of tweets that Trump gets. Nobody's going to be at that 9,000 mark. The other key number, I think, in about the 2020 election in the U.S. is 5 billion, actually 6 billion. That's the amount of free media that Trump got compared to Hillary's maybe 2 billion. I now see one person who can at least pay for 5 billion in, in media. <laughs> but his initial rollout hasn't been as good. So, so this kind of leads me to conclude and, you know, just in casual conversations, just, well, what, it, what does it take for a Democrat to win? It may be somebody from labor. It takes a Tony Blair. It takes a um, Bill Clinton or a um, Barack Obama, somebody who's got that kind of magnetic, electric kind of appeal that draws people in not on a negative basis, which is one way to rally people and, and populists and fascists do it, but on the positive side. And I'd argue this is much harder, much rarer, right? So you can't really teach that. You can, you can try to teach it, but even if it was acted, um, it would be hard to do. You can't put Kevin Hart, you know, comedian, out in front of people and like, okay, follow me. But <laughs> I've told this to all my friends, and I'm gonna throw it out there. There's one figure that's not only on my mind, but on other people's minds too, who I think could do this, who could get that number and wouldn't need to be a billionaire. And he's an A-list celebrity and is known for only positive things. And I think could actually get the tweets that Trump does. Anybody want to guess? Not Christian. I think an A-list celebrity, he is known, it's a he, he's known from Mongolia down to Antarctica. He's got a real name and then he's got a stage name. Mm, I want to say The Rock. You got it. <laughs> yes. That's all I have to say. It's the, he's that ingrained in people's minds. So I was telling this to people at, at Oxford and like, I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, I could see that. And then, and then I actually wrote an op-ed, but I haven't, I haven't published it. And, it, and it's going to be why it has to be The Rock. 
if you want to challenge Donald Trump on a positive basis over here. If you want to try to buy something like a Bloomberg thing, are you ever going to get that enthusiasm up? Can you buy enthusiasm? That's hard to do. That's the most difficult thing there is. And how can you win people over who are undecided or potentially movable, but they need a selling proposition? What are you bringing that the known person isn't? And how are you making me feel unique? Or not so much unique, but how are you uniquely inspiring me? And I, and I felt this for a candidate. I worked for a guy named Jerry Brown in 92. And he was the governor, the former governor of California then. He ran for president three times, but he was kind of like the Bernie Sanders, only he was a younger version, kind of a combination between Bernie and, I don't know, who would he be? Kind of a thoughtful, more thoughtful, almost like uh, Mario Cuomo is kind of more Jesuit and very thoughtful about things. And we were running against Bill Clinton. And I met Bill Clinton once, and I thought Jerry was charismatic, and he was, but Jerry was known for kind of busting up things and, and kind of creative disruption. And I was standing there with my brown for President Button, and this is in New Hampshire before uh, the election, there was a debate. So all the candidates were coming in. Tom Harkin walks right by me, Gene Wilder, Virginia walks right by me, Bob Kerry, Senator from Nebraska, they don't care about me. Bill Clinton. There's no reason to talk to me. I like Brown was like fifth or sixth. And it's, oh, hello. And shook my hand, and that eye was the most genuine eye contact I've ever had with anybody in my life. That's weird, right? Uh, we're done. We're done. Let's just carry it, go home, forget it. So, and that's what he had, but I think that's what Dwayne Rock, the Rock Johnson has, and all he has to do is go out there and say, look, it's, it's, it's a mess, and I don't want to do this. I'll do it if you want me to. And, and I'll just be, I'll be your vehicle. You tell me what to do and I'll assemble the team and we'll do this from a very positive point of view. So The Rock had a, um, what do you call it, a reality show, <laughs> not like The Apprentice. The reality show was getting people to believe in themselves. Why would you believe in yourself? Because I'm The Rock. I got you. I'm here for you. You can do this. I can't do it. The Rock is saying you can do it. If, if, if that message was out there to the U.S., that, uh, that's the only thing I could see that would actually obliterate Trump in an election. That's the only thing. He has an app where you can get him to record your wake-up message for you. Oh, really? It's like, it's that's generic, but you can wake up to, like, to, the, to the rock? positivity from the rock. There you go. And I'm sure it's never negative. There probably isn't yeah. any negative recording out there. So. Do we have any final questions before we wrap up? I have a bit of amusing, if that's okay, just to get your take on this. Yeah. Um, obviously, kind of the last century, our media has become increasingly visual. Obviously, we, we always had newspapers, but then uh, with images and everything we've talked about today. What I'm wondering now is, um, with this kind of meteoric rise of podcasting, yeah. and simultaneously people dropping off of social media because of all the kind of negative psychological effects mm. it has, I wonder whether you think that might have some kind of influence on how much visual content we consume or how we consume that visual content mm. because we now have what you might almost describe as an intensely personalized experience this news feeling like somebody's speaking directly to you mm. um, and whether you think that will influence um, yeah, all of this 
Hmm. I don't know what the what the interaction between podcast listening and visual consumption would be, but it'd be really interesting. Remember, I was talking before about dividing people not along party lines, but along some other interesting right. line. So podcast listening might be one. Now, first, I would say kind of intelligentsia, but also you're going to get people who are like conspiracy buffs or very special interest buffs. And I love listening to podcasts, but podcasts are, are narrative and very evocative. So when I'm driving those long, well, a medium Texas drive is like six hours in the middle of nowhere from one point to another. I'll play a podcast because it keeps my mind active. But how does it do that? By evoking really not just a, a narrative scene, but a visual scene as well. So you have a very kind of um, palpable sense of, of, you know, almost what's in front of you, even though it's in your mind. So I would think there would be a connection, but I'm not quite sure what it would be. And I haven't, the other thing I haven't brought into any of this yet is narrative. And... Um, you know, these are the deeper kind of almost mythological or culturally grounded historical conditions of the way we process information. So I think we're all going to respond in a certain way to basic displays, but when it gets more nuanced and when we see someone, we follow someone over time, there I think narrative's gonna play out. Um, and that's where a good campaign, you know, you get someone who catches fire and they kind of emerge as that grassroots leader, which ironically, that's what Trump did in 2016. He just caught fire. And um, he had a very kind of, for his base, it was very inspiring narrative. Look what we did. Yeah. So um, the, like the, the one thing I want to add to that, like the, when we look at images, like specifically in this case, online, like in social media, Facebook and Twitter, hmm. like we, we um, recently analyzed some data where we looked at the, the differences between uh, information that was given verbal, uh, like only written, and something that was written and had an image attached to it. Mm -hmm. And we found interaction rates between the stuff that had no image and the stuff that did have, there was about a thousand percent more sharing and interaction right. Right. with posts online that has an image. Right. Um, and I think we found uh, about um, five times as much uh, there even with videos. Um, so there's, there's a tendency, like the, the popularity of things that are being said and things that are being seen, mm -hmm. like the, the spread is much, much larger yeah. when you have something that's multimodal, visual, of any kind. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And I need to incorporate some of that data when I, when I talk about this. Um, but no, that's, that's um, platform regardless of shape or um, focus is becoming more, in a way, television-like. Um, but also goes back to Andy's point, it, it was about visual memes. And you know what happens when you qualify an image with a, uh, a verbal frame? And if you don't have a strong opinion about the content, that could have a lot of influence. Or even if you do, it might, if it's in the direction you're going, it can have a reinforcing effect, or if it's in the opposite direction, it can have a very kind of re recoiling kind of negative effect. And we looked at this in relation, not with the, the verbal um, conditioning of it, we looked at it just in terms of images, of <laughs> images of fracking, believe it or not. 
So people out in Texas have strong beliefs about it, and there's some supporters of it. But we did, actually, it was a national survey. And if you divide people into supporters, opponents, and neutral or undecided on fracking, and you show them images, either in, they're differentially framed, either of economic benefit or environmental kind of harm, uh, and even of uh, protests, so kind of like idealized democracy, either for or against fracking, your standing opinion is going to influence how you interpret that image. But if you layer that image on with a headline or a meme, then it's going to interact even more in a more complicated way. And so we call that integrative framing. And that's, that's where the next uh, fracking study needs to go. But, you know, again, talking about visual politics, like that's policy related, that would all go under this giant rubric. So one of the... <laughs> huge tasks I have if I'm going to do this is to try to organize almost in an encyclopedic fashion what fits under visual politics, what are the major headings, and what are the subheadings. Um, but yeah, memes are, are out there and having an effect. I think on that note, we may have to draw to a close, if that's okay. But, um, that's okay. Just say thank you again so much, um, Eric, for joining us. Thanks for having me.